Welcome to another episode of the LA Public Health Podcast. I'm Steve Baldwin. Today's topic is one that hasn't received much coverage from other podcasts or even from the mainstream media, and that is long-term COVID. What is long-term COVID? What do we know about it? How common is it? How does it impact the body? And how's it being treated? I'm joined today by two guests. Dr. Isabel Pedraza is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. She's a specialist in internal medicine and pulmonary medicine with the Cedar sinai COVID-19 Recovery Program. I'm also joined by Shelby Hedgecock, who at age 28 in April of 2020 was diagnosed with COVID-19 and is still suffering from the effects of that infection today, almost two years later. She has been diagnosed with long-term COVID. Is that the correct way to say it, Shelby? Long-term COVID? Yes, long COVID, long-term COVID. Same okay. Thing. <laughs> and Shelby has, she's so kind that she's agreed to join the show and share her experience with long COVID. So Shelby, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show and share about your experience. Thank you for having me. Shelby, when were you first diagnosed? I was diagnosed with COVID on April 20th, 2020. You remember the exact day? Yes, I remember yeah. the exact day. The world changed forever. April 20th, 2020, that was really early in the pandemic. We didn't know too much about COVID-19 at that point. What was that like? It was interesting. I mean, I had heard about COVID, obviously. Um, you know, it had been about a little over a month since LA had been shut down and whatnot. But I mean, I never thought that if I got exposed or if I did get COVID, I would still be sick two years later. Like the thought never crossed my mind. And it also never crossed my mind that I would be one of the people that almost died from it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was definitely interesting, all of that going on, but I wasn't really scared. You said you almost died from it. Mm-hmm. Were you hospitalized as a result from the infection? Yeah, so it's, it's a long story. <laughs> so I was diagnosed on April 20th and, um, you know, I had extreme GI issues, headaches and so on. My symptoms progressed pretty rapidly. Within about, a, I would say, a couple of weeks, I started having trouble breathing. I was scared to go to bed at night. Uh, my oxygen stats were about 87 at night, mm. and my pulse was over 130. So that was, like, really, really hard on my body. My body, my organs, it just I wasn't getting enough oxygen. And I just want to preface this by saying I was an athlete before I got sick. I was in the gym. I was a personal trainer. That was very, very intense, and it was absolutely terrifying. And so I ended up going to the ER on three different occasions, and I got turned away because they took one look at me, and they were like, you're young and healthy. And I was trying to tell the physicians that, hey, I can't. My oxygen is okay right now, but whenever I go to sleep, I'm really struggling. On one occasion, I actually was turned away completely. The nurse told me that the doctor had told him to tell me 
not to come back because I was at risk of infecting others because I had told them that I'd been to a couple other ERs and it was just extremely hard to get care. And I felt like nobody took me seriously at the time whenever I was literally hypoxic. Do you feel like no one took you seriously because you looked young and healthy and fit? I mean, if you don't mind me saying, you, well, let me ask you, how how old are you? I'm 30 years old. Okay, so in 2020, you were 28. Mm-hmm. And you're young and healthy and vibrant and, and a fit person. You come down with COVID. And so do you think that that was the primary reason that they weren't taking you seriously? Like they look at you and go, this is a healthy person. What are you doing here? Yeah, it wasn't presenting. Like whenever I'm sitting here saying like, I can't breathe and I could breathe talking to them. um, They're probably just like, oh, like she's okay. She's young. She's fit. She's fine. Like this isn't really going on. And I understand that a lot wasn't known about the disease then, Mm -hmm. but that was horrifying absolutely horrifying okay so what happened next how did how did you end up getting treatment so i ended up uh losing filling in my legs not long after that last er visit that i had and i literally thought i was just gonna die like i i was like i can't get care you know all my entire family is across the country It was such a bad experience, very traumatic. I'd lost feeling in my legs and I went to Cedar sinai after some push from family over FaceTime, like you need to go, like call the ambulance, you need to go. And they had actually seen while I was there, whenever I was walking, my O2 stats dropped and all the bells and whistles went off. You know, I was like crying. I was like, here we go. Like, this is it for me. You know, like I'm going to be put on event. Like, this is just terrible. And that was whenever I did get hospitalized. It was never put on event, but at least at that point in time, they were like, okay, it's, this is really like neurologically, like the whole nine yards messing with this girl. How long did you end up being hospitalized? I was in the hospital overnight, but there was a lot that happened after that. Like they ended up releasing me um, after doing just some tests. But some of my symptoms, I mean, they were just progressing. Like they just literally didn't know what to do for me at all. They didn't know what to do. They were like, there's not really anything emergent going on. So she's okay to go home. Now, Shelby, you you just mentioned a a moment ago neurological disorder. Mm -hmm. And before we went on the air, you mentioned that you had some brain damage. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think it was October of 2020 was whenever I found out about my brain injury. And I've had a lot of cognitive dysfunction. The word brain fog gets thrown around a lot, but that makes it sound like it's just, oh, just a little brain fog, no big deal. Like, no, this is cognitive dysfunction. I struggle retaining information. There's word recall issues. I stutter at times. I had intense personality changes those first few months after my infection. It was pretty scary. And yeah, I mean, this, it's, it doesn't affect everybody that way, but for sure, for me, I do have a brain injury due to the hypoxia I had in my early 
infection. My brain wasn't getting enough oxygen. And you never had any of those issues prior to oh, um, no. prior to this. Yeah. What was your life like prior to COVID? Aside from, you know, you said you were healthy and going to the gym, personal trainer. What was your life like pre-COVID? I was always on the go. <laughs> uh, I was a personal trainer doing 10,000 things. I mean, I was about to launch my online wellness program. You know, I really I wanted to help others and teach people like to have a good relationship with food and things like that. You know, I was really on fire. That's what I loved. Uh, you know, I competed in obstacle course races, you know, like Spartan races and stuff. I mean, that's what I used to do. You know, anything that kept me on my toes, really. And life has changed a lot, to say the least. Hmm. Contrast that to now. So how has your life changed? I mean, you see, and talking to you, or we're both on camera. I can see you. You can see me. You look healthy to me. What? How has your life changed, though? Your activity level is different. Uh, yeah, I um, mean. What are you doing differently now? Functionality and quality of life for the majority of us COVID-injured survivors. I mean, it's completely been taken away. Like, we just want to be functional. And I'm grateful that I do have a job where I can work from home on my computer, but I have a lot of issues. I, I have an issue with fainting. I was diagnosed with POTS, so mm. I've actually passed out in the shower, oftentimes after shower sitting down. I've almost passed out at the Ralph's going to the grocery store by myself, um, mm. so I don't really like to do that alone. You lose some of your independence, and you have to think, I mean – there's some people that don't have the luxury I have of working from home or can't or can't talk like they used to or can't even walk. So I'm very grateful in that aspect. But I mean, there's a lot of loss going on within our community. And I feel like the media likes to put on a front that there are a lot of resources out there for us, but there really isn't because this is a multi-system disease. It's a vascular disease. So everybody's symptoms are different, right? There's no treatment or cure. And at the end of the day, it's really, really hard to be functional. And for me, I deal with pain almost every day, body pain. I have chronic inflammation that nothing really helps get it under control. I'm very, very sensitive to medications. So... You have to think, I mean, going from a life of being on your toes all the time, go, 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 feeling really, really good to this. I mean, it's it's pretty extreme. What is your well, I imagine you're under doctor's care still. You're seeing you're under medical supervision for this, I imagine. What is the long term prognosis of this? What, what are the doctors telling you now? They don't know. They really don't know. I mean, there's more data coming out. I mean, there's pretty solid data now about how this is affecting the brain. But we don't know, like, how for how long that is. We don't know if it's reversible. You know, and just the fact, I mean, there's so many people getting infected with COVID. Like, you, you don't have to have a severe case of COVID to get long COVID. I know many, many 
COVID injured survivors, like long COVID patients that had a mild or asymptomatic disease and they have long COVID. So, I mean, there's serious organ damage going on and um, it honestly feels like we're getting left behind. Shelby, what would you say to young people who maybe feel that their age or the fact that they're in good health, you know, is enough to protect them from getting COVID or even long COVID? What would you say to them? That they clearly do not understand this disease at all. This is a deadly, very, very scary pathogen. It can literally affect your entire body. It's Russian roulette. It truly is. You know, and I will say, you know, my boyfriend, he and he and I got infected at the same time back in April of 2020. He was over it in three days and I'm still sick two years later. Right. So mm-hmm. it's literally a roll of the dice, how it's going to affect you. Sometimes people have issues popping up immediately and sometimes it's a few months later. So until we know more, I would just suggest people really pay attention to their bodies. And if they have any issues start to pop up talk to their doctor because we just don't know. Well, Shelby, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you. And thank you really on behalf of all of our Mm -hmm. listeners and the department. uh, Really, truly thankful for your bravery and and for coming on the show and sharing your experience with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm joined by Dr. Isabel Pedraza. She is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles. And she is a specialist in both internal medicine and pulmonary medicine with the Cedars-Sinai COVID-19 Recovery Program. Dr. Pedraza, thank you so much for joining the LA Public Health Podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I'd love to know more about the COVID-19 recovery program at Cedars. What do you guys do there? Well, the COVID-19 recovery program was put together by a bunch of us that were treating patients early on in the pandemic. And I'm also a critical care physician and was running the medical intensive care unit. At one point, I think we were the busiest in California uh, with COVID patients. And we were finding that these patients, once they recovered, were were coming in with complaints of persistent symptoms. And at the time, I'm not sure if we all remember, but they were having a very hard time getting in to get care anywhere. I think that's understandable, but also people not really, I don't think anybody really understood what was happening and the symptoms were maybe a bit nebulous at the time. And so people were really having a hard time getting care for these ongoing symptoms. So Catherine Lay, who is an infectious disease specialist, spearheaded this clinic uh, and recruited a couple of other infectious disease specialists and myself, along with other subspecialists, to basically provide holistic assessment of patients who are recovering from long COVID. And so we typically see uh, patients who are experiencing symptoms beyond four weeks after their recovery of their initial illness. They come in and get a medical assessment by one of our physicians, and we do a a neurocognitive battery and physical battery of questions uh, and testing to screen for the symptoms of long COVID and determine if any therapy is warranted. 
And we've actually recently put together a uh, support group. Uh, we have a social worker that has a support group that has patients meet to discuss their experiences. And I think that they've found that incredibly beneficial and incredibly therapeutic. You know, there's it's it feels like a very lonely disease when I talk to patients that they feel like no one else is going through what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. So I think having other people to share in the experience is really important in getting over a lot of aspects of this disease. Mm. What have you learned since the beginning of the the pandemic around February, March, April 2020 and now? What do we know about long COVID that we didn't know then? Well, I think the thing we know most is that it actually happens in a significant portion of patients. I think that things are starting starting to crystallize a bit more about how the symptoms present. I think that we're making more and more progress in terms of determining what the actual physiologic causes are. Mm. I think it will lend a lot of knowledge to other diseases that are very similar. So I actually think it's a great opportunity to, to understand uh, similar diseases like what happens in patients who have Lyme disease or who have chronic fatigue syndrome or who suffer mononucleosis and sort of these chronic fatigue types of syndromes. So what we know is that about, well, th- the numbers are pretty broad, but I think anywhere between, depending on the study you read, 30 to 87% of patients will develop long covid I think depending on how severe your disease is, it becomes more likely. But it doesn't mean that if you had mild disease, you won't have it. We certainly have patients who had very mild symptoms and who developed long COVID, you know, several weeks after their recovery. So it it doesn't spare you if you don't happen to have severe disease. And do you want me to get into the... um, constellation of symptoms, because I think that's where we are right now. Right now, we're at the place where we understand how to diagnose it, and we are starting to get into studying different treatment algorithms for different facets of this disease. Yeah, I I would love to hear more about the constellation of symptoms. I mean, we've heard about issues with the brain. We've heard about vascular issues. What are the long-term effects of COVID on the body? Yeah, I think yeah, in order to understand it, and not that we understand it, we understand it very minimally right now. But if you think about how COVID affects the body, it, the way that it invades cells is by attaching to what's called an ACE receptor. And this is a receptor that's ubiquitous. It's in all of our tissues and it's responsible for regulating blood pressure. It's responsible for, it's responsible for many facets of our, the functioning of our body. And so, There's many organs that have different concentrations of this, the heart being among the ones that has the highest concentration. And so you can imagine that if a virus is attaching to these receptors everywhere, that there could be potential direct viral damage. So we suspect, and there's a lot of evidence pointing to that, that there is a significant portion of it that is due to direct viral damage of of the cells. But we also know that the more salient part of COVID is that it is a very hyperinflammatory disease. It can be a very hyperinflammatory disease. So as you end up producing all these inflammatory chemicals, they can spread throughout the body and, you know, end up causing damage just by being transported there through the bloodstream. And that's one of the ways that we think it may cause damage to the brain 
but it affects every organ in the body and it sort of reflects in the symptoms that you see patients presenting with. Are we seeing long COVID in both adults and children? I think it's too early to tell for children, but the reports that are out there suggest that it's a lot less simply because children are less likely to get severe disease. I don't think we know yet, though. And I think that's the thing that makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, Certainly, there have been reports of children with long COVID. Thankfully, they don't, you know, the likelihood of getting long COVID does go up a bit with the severity of disease and with comorbid diseases like diabetes and obesity, which tend to be a little less common in children. So I don't think we know enough yet. Certainly, the very rare but devastating illness called MISC or multisystem inflammatory syndrome, which is basically like an unchecked inflammation of the body that, that looks a lot like other autoimmune diseases, is uh, pretty terrifying because most of those children mm-hmm. are hospitalized and with some can have long term consequences. So it's not trivial. Certainly, we vaccinate for viruses that have less damage, (laughs) that cause less damage to children. And so it it does make me a little uncomfortable saying that children are fine and and are not at risk for either MISC or or long COVID, because we just don't know. Mm -hmm. So one of the most frightening aspects of COVID-19 now seems to be that the potential to linger for so long after the infection. So can you maybe share what exactly is long COVID? How do we diagnose it or or differentiate it between regular COVID, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think we've spent the better part of the past couple of years trying to answer that question. So long COVID, the best definition out there really, I think, is put forth by the CDC. It's symptoms that either persist beyond four weeks or symptoms that have their onset after someone has recovered from their acute COVID-19 infection. Certainly, people can persist beyond four weeks. Some definitions say that that symptoms beyond three months, since it seems like a, a good portion of people end up resolving most of their symptoms at three months, but at least four weeks after the onset of symptoms, persistent or new symptoms that happen after that initial illness that, you know, is like most of us have seen is a cold in most people that are pretty severe cold that can either progress to severe disease or if they recuperate, they end up having persistent symptoms that stay or new symptoms that appear. So is the diagnosis then the length of time that the symptoms persist or is there some other diagnostic criteria that is? Yeah, so that's one aspect of it. There's a constellation of symptoms and it certainly differs for different people. But the most common symptoms are going to be fatigue above most other things. is chronic and debilitating fatigue, often interfering with their ability to perform their daily activities of daily living or being able to work. Poor sleep or non-refreshing sleep. Along with that can be brain fog. It's, it's unclear if the brain fog is a direct injury from the infection or or whether it's due to poor sleep. There's investigations going into that right now. What is brain fog and how is it impacting people? The brain fog described by patients with long COVID really is an impairment in the usual things that we would think about that we are required to perform our daily tasks, to perform our jobs, 
to do things such as, you know, driving and switching lanes. So it's, it's problems with multitasking. It's problems with memory, problems with um, word finding and what we call executive functions. So it's, it's the things that allow us to do multiple things at once. It's a very high percentage of patients that have some level of brain fog. And when we do testing, we actually see an, an impairment in their cognitive abilities. And this is not just elderly people who may have dementia. These are young people, people in their 20s and 30s, people who've never had an issue with any sort of cognitive problem. And so it's important to identify, you know, it's important to identify that because there are treatments for it. I certainly have had, I had a patient who was afraid to drive because they were worried about having to switch lanes that they, they didn't think they could remember how to do it. Other stories I've heard of people forgetting how to drive home. People who are in charge of companies or in, in you know, in charge of a large uh, group of people at work, feeling afraid that they are unable to do the management tasks that have been routine to them in the past. And so over and over, you hear how people are having problems with these activities that they've done all their lives or they've done all their adult lives, and it's impairing their ability to do their job. And that's an injury. To me, that's a that's an injury to the brain. It sort of pans out when we do cognitive testing, and we're actually lucky in that we have a very good neuropsychology department, speech therapy department that can do these assessments and really determine what kind of cognitive speech therapy somebody needs. Because again, it's sort of the same problem as the physical side of it. If you overdo it in your cognition, if you're doing too many tasks, you can actually cause the brain fog to get worse. So I sort of explain it to patients that it's an injury in the brain. We have to figure out what the best way is to rehab that and that it may take some time. And I certainly have seen people get better and get better more quickly with cognitive rehabilitation. The tough thing about it is that people look fine. They don't look like anything's wrong with them, but they will tell you that they can't do the things that they were doing before and that they can't do their job anymore. Um, mm. I've had people have to go on disability who really don't have a lot of physical disability, but cannot do the tasks that they were doing that were required in their job. And it's really striking to me and scary to me how that can manifest. And it's worrisome for what that means long term. I certainly see people get better, but it's being studied as, a you know, is this going to lead to earlier onset of dementia? Um, is it going to lead to other deficits? There's certainly neuropathies that can happen as well, you know, is this some sort of neuropathy that's going to persist in the brain? Um, so I think identifying what is causing that brain fog and getting into therapy may help mitigate some of that risk. But that's another big part of what we see and what we have to counsel patients through is brain fog. And it's, again, I've been surprised so many times by people that just look fine and you do the cognitive testing and it, it is shockingly low. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, because when I think of brain fog, I think of, I forgot where I put my keys or I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. I mean, this is something much more serious than that, obviously. What does the treatment look like for that? It's cognitive speech therapy. They use language and memory tasks in different types of language and memory tasks mm -hmm. to work different parts of the brain. Like I said, we're very fortunate in that we have a very good rehabilitative team that's very used to seeing COVID patients now and are very adept at managing their therapy. But yeah, it is, it's amazing to me how 
much it affects people's lives. You know, I've, I've had people who really had to go just on disability just because they could no longer answer the phone. They couldn't maintain a conversation because they did. They forgot what they were supposed to say. It's just shocking. And these are young people who have no reason to have things like this happening. I feel bad because I feel like a lot of times people don't take them seriously. And a lot of these people look fine on the outside, but we have testing that demonstrates that they're not fine. And I, I think taking people seriously and understanding that this is a real problem is the first step because it's terrible to know that there's something wrong with you and have people tell you that you're fine when you're not. And so my advice is to definitely seek help. And if you continue to feel like you're not feeling right, to go into one of these centers that is used to assessing patients with long COVID and long COVID brain fog. Okay. Certainly, uh, many people can have cardiac problems where they develop either tachycardias or fast heart rates. They can develop something called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is the big name basically <laughs> for an inappropriately high heart rate for minimal activity. I wouldn't say it's, it's tremendously common, but it happens in a significant number of patients. And of course, some patients develop inflammation of the heart muscle that can happen a few weeks after they've recovered from their illness. So brain fog, fatigue, or sleep. Headache is another one. Uh, interestingly, I feel like I've had a lot more complaints of headache after this Omicron wave. So I don't know if it may have to do with the type of virus you were infected with, but headache either new onset or worsening of previous migraine-like headaches. And these are, again, daily debilitating headaches in people that have not had them before. Definitely weakness, muscle weakness. Again, it's still unclear exactly what causes that. But I can tell you I've had people who are very athletic, who were competitive athletes, very clearly had difficulty even performing regular daily tasks. Um, so there is a profound weakness that occurs there and deconditioning. And so those are the main symptoms. There are other things that can, that have also been linked to it, uh, something called mast cell activation syndrome, where the mast cell, which is a sort of an inflammatory cell that releases histamine, is activated inappropriately. And, and so people can and, and end up getting high heart rates and flushing and sometimes rashes. And uh, it's very uncomfortable mm. for people. And of course, you know, the usual loss of smell and taste, although that doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be as much of a problem with Omicron, but it really can affect people's lives and that they lose weight. They, you know, it affects your quality of life. And the other big category that we're finding is that a very high number of people screen positive for anxiety, screen positive mm -hmm. at risk for depression, and a significant number screen at risk for PTSD, which was a bit of a surprise to all of us. You know, mm -hmm. high enough where you're, the usual incidence in the population is around 2 to 3 percent. And there have been reports as, as high, well, between 8 to 10 percent and even higher than that in patients recovering from COVID-19. And these are not only patients that have been hospitalized. These are patients that may have never required hospitalization. So a big psychiatric component to it, mm. you know, and I think that that's very under-recognized and under-treated. Again, it's this constellation of symptoms with different, you know, everybody sort of comes in with their own, mm -hmm. own set of, of symptoms, but those are the main ones. And I, I would say the fatigue and weakness are probably the, the biggest ones that we see. Mm. And I'm sorry, how so, can so, I forget this as a pulmonologist? Shortness of breath. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe. So, 
I had ignored my own organ. So shortness <laughs> of breath is, is another is another big one. Although funny enough, I, I think that at the beginning we were very worried about people ending up developing a lot of severe lung scarring. Even because you, you would see it even in people who hadn't been hospitalized. Uh, where you would see CT scans that showed lung scarring. And it turns out it's it's really not that common, thankfully. Most of the time, even when people leave the hospital without normal CT scans, they tend to clear. Um, mm-hmm. Or if they end up having any problems, they're really minimal. So surprisingly, long-term lung fibrosis is not as much of a concern. New onset or worsening of airways disease like asthma is very much a concern. And certainly... Mm-hmm sinus disease, cough are incredibly common. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I do have a, a large portion of patients who come in with uncontrolled asthma, uncontrolled upper airways disease, and mm-hmm. really refractory cough, the COVID cough. Yeah, so that was a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> so, Imagine the patients. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's incredible. So you know, some of that we've heard about, um, like the smell and the taste, and certainly some of the some of the symptoms are, I would imagine, are more treatable, more easily treatable than others. How long do you see this the symptoms lasting? For example, poor sleep, the brain fog, the fatigue. Do those tend to be chronic? Uh, are those treatable in the patients that you're seeing? And that is a complicated answer. I don't think we know exactly yet. We can certainly look at previous viruses that have this, this COVID is not the first virus to cause this type of syndrome. Actually, the SARS-CoV-1 20 years ago when we had the first COVID pandemic, there were many reports of patients with very, very similar symptoms of, you know, malaise, post-exertional malaise, fatigue, brain fog, shortness of breath was reported with MERS as well. It's been reported with survivors of Ebola virus disease. It's been reported with survivors of gene bar virus. So it's not the first virus to do this. And I'm sorry, I lost track because I've only had two cups of coffee. What was your question again? <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, what, what's the, the sort of the long-term prognosis of some of the these maladies that the patients are suffering from? Are you seeing this as a permanent like chronic condition or do you, are you seeing some success with the treatments that you're able to employ? You know, what I tell my patients is we don't, we're still learning. We don't know. There are uh, studies out there that are looking at six month and one year follow ups. So mm. we don't really have it beyond that yet. In my experience in our clinic, I would say the majority of patients get better. It may take months. I certainly have had patients that have over a year of symptoms. The tendency is for it to continue to improve. Where I see people getting into trouble is not understanding how to manage especially the fatigue and the post-exertional malaise in which case and the brain fog in which case they may do things that can potentially lengthen the course because this is just me postulating that perhaps they're they're causing more inflammation or more local damage by trying to push through it right so if that's the case because we'll sometimes see people come in months after their initial illness and they've been trying to just push through. And those people, the ones that I've seen, take maybe a bit longer to get mm-hmm. better. But I do tell people that there is hope. It certainly seems like there are a significant portion of our patients that improve. Is there a way for anyone to mitigate their risk of getting long COVID? For example, does being 
vaccinated and boosted reduce the risk of long COVID? Yeah, I mean, have I seen patients who have been vaccinated in clinic with long COVID? Yes, they are sort of the unicorns. They're they're rare. So for the vast majority, you know, we've had uh, a year or so now of the public being vaccinated. And Mm -hmm. we just haven't seen many people, at least in our clinic, that have been vaccinated with long COVID. When I've seen them, certainly they have symptoms and they fall in line with the usual presentation. It seems less severe and it seems to last less time. There are many studies out there. I'm trying to remember, I think it was a a UK meta-analysis that basically showed the, the marked decrease in long COVID if you were vaccinated. Uh, There was another study showing that even one dose of vaccine reduced your chances of having persistent symptoms beyond, I think it was 28 days. So Mm. being vaccinated, and if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. If if you don't have the virus replicating in you and continuing to drive the inflammation, it's less likely that you're going to cause long-term damage to your organs. So if if the virus doesn't have a chance to get a hold of you, it seems to be panning out that it's just not at high risk. So vaccination absolutely is a way to protect yourself. It's not obviously nothing in this world is 100%, but it's pretty close. It's very, very few people would that even get breakthrough infections. It's the vast, vast minority that get long COVID who are vaccinated. So it's, it's almost exclusively unvaccinated patients. Thank you. And then what about, uh, do you have any thoughts on the boosters as well, which is obviously is a booster to the vaccination. But do you have any thoughts on that? Or have you seen patients with with or without boosters? Is there any data on that that shows that boosters are effective against long COVID? There's uh, data on both sides. Uh, mm-hmm. There's certainly data showing that there are patients who had significant improvement after vaccination. There's also patients who've had significant worsening after vaccination. So I think that's where we still don't understand Mm. the exact pathophysiology of this. I think that there is likely a benefit to augmenting your vaccination. And I am not an immunologist, so I I can't pretend to, to speak intelligently about that. But, you know, I sort of tell my patients, if you can prevent yourself from getting this again, it'll be less likely that you have reactivation of all these symptoms. You know, the concern is if you get infected again, you'll have the driving force to, to cause all this inflammation and reignite the, the symptoms of long COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, the interesting thing about this disease, and this maybe is this something that I've been doing more and more in my clinic, is that it, it looks a lot like uh, something called ME-CFS, which is myalgic encephalitis chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a very poorly understood entity. One of the cardinal features is what's called post-exertional malaise uh, or post-exertional fatigue, which means that when people exert themselves, either physically or mentally, so it can be mental tasks as well, they get worse. And so I'll often have patients come in or I'll ask them, if you're feeling great one day and you go out and do your usual, you know, running a mile or doing all the different errands that you needed to do, do you find that maybe later that day or the following day your your fatigue is dramatically worsened? And they're like, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And so that's something that's been described in things like EBV, Epstein-Barr virus infections and, and chronic fatigue in general, myalgic encephalitis. And I think the important thing is there is the possibility of making things worse by not understanding how to set limits for yourself. 
certainly I tell patients you need to make sure that you're maintaining activity because it's very easy. Apparently, it's very easy to get deconditioned. People get too afraid to exercise because they'll feel terrible. And so they get more and more deconditioned. So it's important to maintain activity. But I've sort of gone to the CDC website and printed out a bunch of materials on MECFS and we review it with the patients and I have them keep an activity diary so that they understand what they're doing every day. If they happen to overdo it and be fatigued the next day, they'll have a sense of what may have caused that. It's sort of a biofeedback. And so I, I tell them it's sort of like operating in an energy window. You have a certain window or envelope of energy that you have to use up. And you can't go beyond that because if you go beyond that, your body's going to, is, is not going to like it. So, but you want to exert yourself. So stay within that energy window and plan accordingly. So if there's tasks that you need to do, you need to parse out that energy so that you have enough for each task. And I know there are a lot of centers that are doing that now because it seems to be the best way to manage the fatigue to not exacerbate it, but mm. to get people more conditioned. So if I believe I may have long COVID, say I maybe had COVID six months ago and I recovered, but I've just not felt the same since then. I've been tired. I've been fatigued. I've, I've had some brain fog. What should I do? You know, I think that those symptoms could possibly be due to long COVID. The thing I always worry about is people attributing things to long COVID that are not and missing underlying disease that could be treated. Certainly, we've found there seems to be a higher incidence of patients developing hypertension after COVID-19, and, and there's physiologic reasons for that. And so your symptoms could be that you have now developed hypertension. Diabetes, either new onset or worsening of diabetes is another phenomenon that's been described. So you definitely want to make sure you're not missing something that is potentially, you know, dangerous to not treat. I always tell people, you know, make sure that you at least go to your primary care physician, make sure that you've ruled out other more, more serious causes, not that long COVID is not serious, but other things that are treated differently. Once those things have been ruled out, it can be tricky. I think more and more people are understanding long COVID and how it presents and how to treat it. If you feel like you either are not being heard or that something's wrong and you're being told everything is fine, then maybe getting to a specialty clinic might be the way to go. Because again, we've seen so much of it, it's, it's easier to pick out what may truly be brain fog or insomnia or fatigue and, and post-exertional malaise. We, we might be better able to pick that out and recommend different types of treatments. That would be my advice is first make sure it's not something that needs to be treated that is not long mm -hmm. COVID. And then if you're not able to really get an answer from your usual practitioners to maybe go to a specialty clinic. And there are several now in Los Angeles. Oh, that makes sense. This is kind of a simple question, but I think I know the answer, but I have to ask it anyway. Let's say that I was diagnosed with COVID months ago. And I test negative now, but I have symptoms. I think I have symptoms of long COVID. Can I spread COVID to others while I have symptoms or conditions of long COVID? In other words, is long COVID contagious? Long COVID is not contagious. It doesn't mean you can't get COVID again. 
And certainly, even with vaccination, it is possible to get the infection, and it's so mild you may not know it and you transmit it to someone else. So it, it is possible that you have a new infection that's worsening your long COVID. But long COVID itself, there's nothing infectious about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's basically your body has not recovered from this injury. And it's your body trying to trying to recover from that. From whatever mechanism, either it be direct viral injury or inflammation, it's caused damage to the brain, to the muscles, to the heart, to the kidneys, and to the lung, and that it's taking time to heal. There is nothing there to, to give to somebody else. Got it. Okay. I did want to circle back to uh, an answer you gave earlier about the types of symptoms. And you, you talked a little bit about sort of the mental symptoms that are pervasive, anxiety, depression, PTSD. What is your recommendation for treating those? Where should people go if they feel like they may have long COVID or even if they don't, if they're just suffering from anxiety or depression around COVID? Where can people seek help uh, for those types of ailments? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's been a challenge for a lot of our clinics, finding adequate psychiatric support. If your health plan has psychiatrists, you can get to your insurance. That's that's wonderful. Again, because we were having some difficulty meeting that need in our patients, it prompted us to start this support group. I think understanding that it is real and that, you know, there is a high incidence of depression and anxiety and even PTSD surrounding COVID. And also to make sure that it's not something it's a lot of these things may be interrelated. If you have brain fog and you're having problems with word finding and memory, multitasking and usual executive function tasks, it will cause anxiety. Right. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think maybe being able to uh, piece out exactly what is responsible for what if you have insomnia and aren't sleeping is certainly going to affect your mood and, and lead to worsening depression. Sleep apnea certainly has been linked to depression and anxiety. Again, there may be multiple causes. So I think trying to, to parse out whether or not you're having brain fog or insomnia contributing to this. But in the meantime, you, it really is important to get psychiatric care because it, it is affecting one's health to not treat it. A higher state of anxiety will make it harder for you to recover. I think it's a challenge for many people in order to find appropriate psychiatric care, but I usually tell people to, you know, go sleuthing and, and see if you can get an answer from your um, from your insurer or your primary care. Hopefully, most of our clinics are setting up these support groups for those that can't do that so they can get some some psychiatric care. You know, that's great advice. And I'll just add that our own Department of Mental Health does have resources specific to COVID-19 support. And I can include a link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Look for that in your podcast player. Just a couple of more questions. Thank you so much again for spending so much time with us. Um, Yeah, thank you. Just overall, what would you say is the best way that individuals can reduce their risk of contracting long COVID or just COVID in general? Uh, Vaccination. Honestly, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's the best way to do it. N- nothing is 100% sure. You know, I think we need to understand how vaccines work. It's not like you can't get COVID. And I think a lot of these reports that have come out in the news about, 
you know, how useful is the vaccine if you're getting infected anyway misses the point. It may not keep you from getting it, but it, it will likely keep you from getting very sick and hospitalized and dying from it. It makes it far less likely. And if you're less likely to get infected, your chances of getting long COVID are far less because it just doesn't have a chance to damage your body in the way that a regular infection would. I mean, certainly in a regular infection will give you immunity, but at a cost because your your body's having to, to deal with the damage that that virus caused. So far and away, vaccination is the number one way to prevent long COVID. And if an individual has long COVID and has not been vaccinated, is it safe for that individual to get the vaccine? The majority of the time, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I've certainly have had people with long COVID that get better. Mm-hmm. I've had people that have temporary worsening of their symptoms. I have to say that that's the minority, though, now that mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it. Most people don't have any symptoms at all. And and sometimes it behaves like the booster behaved for people who were not vaccinated. They'll have a couple of days of fever or something and then get better. So it is safe. And the vast majority of people either don't notice anything or, or have very minimal symptoms for a couple of days. Of course, if you're being followed for something like mast cell activation syndrome or things like that, you may want to check with your care provider first. But I have not seen patients have severe reactions to it, even after having COVID, because essentially the vaccine is is working as a really, really good booster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, Dr. Petraza, you've been, again, so uh, generous with your time and knowledge and information. Really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your expertise with our audience today. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. And uh, um, I hope people are uh, go seek help for, for these symptoms because I think it's tragic to have to live with all these symptoms without help. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Well, I think your information will certainly help people uh, navigate the resources that are available to them. Again, once again, Dr. Isabel Pedraza with Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.